0: This program has been made possible through the support of Vanda, creators of Solutions for Non-24 Disorder. ACB thanks Vanda for their support. Learn more about Non-24 by visiting their website at www.non24.com.
1: Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. You know, every time I hear that disclaimer, it makes me think of that um, old show, Too Close for Comfort. Something about the music sounds vaguely familiar to that show. But I digress, as I'm known to. Um, I'm your host for today, Anthony Corona. I am joined by three awesome and fascinating individuals who are going to be helping us navigate through picking a therapist and/or figuring out what type of therapy, and if therapy is working for you. So I'm going to introduce my panelists um, one by one, and I'm going to ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves and what type of therapy they practice. And um, then we'll get into some questions and issues. So I have to say a big, big thank you to Jessica Cowell, BPI board member. Um, who also provided us with one of her friends, the third therapist today. So thank you. Thank you for everything, Jess. And tell us a little about yourself.
2: Hey, um, so really, the person that I brought is not a therapist. She is in the, the therapy seat. So you'll get the opposite perspective from her in a bit, but um, just oh, gotcha. just so she doesn't get worried like, no. <laughs> so I'm Jess Kell. Um, I am a licensed clina- clinical certified social worker. Um, I have been in the field for, if you include school placements, I guess, 12 years. Um, I worked largely for about 10 years in the addictions field with opioid treatment, uh, medication-assisted treatment, which most people know as methadone. Um, As I was doing that work throughout Baltimore City, I sort of wanted to phase more into the mental health aspect of things. And so, with my last job, which was based out of a hospital, I got to do both things. I got to do mental health assessment and therapy. And for some people, I did both the addictions work and the mental health work. For some people, I did strictly mental health. And then COVID land happened, and I was furloughed and later laid off. And a friend of mine has had a group practice that he's been establishing for five years. And so I started working with him last summer. And I have been doing telework for the last year. And I love, love, love it. Um, I have found that Because of my page, which is on psychology today, which we can talk about a little bit later, I've started to get a lot of people that are seeking very specifically an LGBT oriented therapist. So it's been really neat um, to have that experience and to be sort of in more high demand for that. Um, And in terms of what I'd like to do, my goal next is to get approved to do supervision so that I can provide clinical kind of mentoring for other therapists and to get certified in perinatal mental health to help people who are going through postpartum or perinatal mental health concerns. Um, And in terms of how I practice therapy, I do a lot of individual work. Um, I don't have any specialties yet. I've thought about doing trauma certification um, or different things like that. But right now I do a lot of sort of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, solution-focused, Uh, Maybe a little bit of narrative. So it's all sort of just an eclectic blend of meeting the people where they are.
1: Awesome. Before we go on to our our next panelist, have you encountered anyone um, visually impaired or other disability wise with the intersectionality of LGBTQ?
2: I have not. What I have had is in my past job, and I really thought I would end up sort of being given all of the disabled clients. I thought people would sort of typecast me that way, but it hasn't happened that way. I got a guy at my last job who had really transitioned and accepted all of it. He lost his sight or was largely losing his sight and actually losing his sight is what led him to stop using because he realized like trying to cop drugs when you can't see if there's a cop behind you is really unsafe. So he, he went through that sort of like this, okay, I need to get sober because I can't legitimately do this without being arrested. And also a lot of depression related to his sight loss. But mm-hmm. when I got him, he had gotten through a lot of that with somebody who had been my boss. Um, so he was very well adjusted um, and, and comfortable. But I have not had the intersectionality of disability and LGBT yet.
1: Awesome. I'm going to come back to you in a moment to introduce um, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but first we have also with us Ron Hughes. Ron, can you tell us a little bit about your style of practice and uh, some of your experiences in your uh, storied career?
0: I, I guess I would say that uh, you know I'm an antique. I'm uh, in my seventies, and uh, I'm, I'm technically uh, retired from the director of administrative and clinical healthcare on uh, a major healthcare facility. Uh, and used to be uh, director of employee assistance for some 3,000 plus employees in the healthcare system. And uh, simultaneously, uh, director of a private practice agency that uh, I started uh, in the 60s. And uh, in the 60s, uh, healthcare was a very different picture and so were attitudes about uh sexual orientation and uh so i devised a or instituted a helpline service and uh that was uh, basically a a toll free open line to anybody who uh had issues uh, that were orientation related and um at that time, uh, I we called it homosexuality help special line, and that's how it was listed in the uh, in the phone book. And uh, I had to actually wrestle the telephone company to the ground to uh, to have it listed without an address because at that time um, the uh, uh, society was as uh, hostile toward um, uh, the gay community as they were racist. And uh, so for protective purposes, we uh, we wanted the number listed without an address. And uh, at one point the address uh, one year, actually it happened two different years. They inadvertently did put the address in, which resulted in my being assaulted by somebody who felt uh, they wanted to teach me a lesson uh, for trying to help those kind of people. Um, So you can see, you know, where we've where we've come since then, but my background is psychiatric uh, in in the, uh, I originally started out in the psychiatric uh, arena uh, hospitals and then went to substance arena and then uh, to general hospital, which opened up was surprised me. Not only did I continue as a psychiatric substance consultant, but I was also dealing with every aspect of of general hospital, and uh, I ended up uh, the last uh, four years of my before retiring. I was doing adolescent pediatric psychotherapy, uh, which I uh, was uh, leery about, but I ended up really loving doing. Okay, but uh, but the uh, LGBTQ uh, from my initial practice uh, uh, continued over forty years. And uh, recently, after I retired, a former uh, patient of mine uh, said that he had discovered some online counseling that he felt uh, helpful to him. And he said, would you look into that? Because uh, you were very helpful uh, in back in the day when I saw you. And, and it's a shame that you're out of the uh, counseling arena. So I did. I, I ended up uh, joining a um, Uh, online um, healthcare platform, uh, which has over 3000 therapists right now, as I understand. And so I have a very small caseload and despite their pressuring me to take on more and more every day, you know, I, there are, you've, you've uh, missed the opportunity for 30 more referrals. You know and I'm going? I don't want 30 more referrals. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I, I do continue with a, a small practice now. And um, later on, as we get to talking, I'd be glad to uh, share some of my thoughts about um, how to obtain a therapist and all of that. But that's my basic background.
2: Can I ask a question? Are you, you're sighted, right?
0: Am I sighted? Are you sighted? Um, I'm kind of sighted, yes.
2: Okay. <laughs> yes, Is I am. The, I, I'm asking because I'm really curious about some of these online platforms, and maybe we've got people in the audience who can speak to this, but I am so curious to know both from the therapist side and the user side if they are accessible.
0: Yeah, well, I I am sighted, uh, and uh, my cohort in life is uh totally blind Mm -hmm. and uh and you know him well jason so
1: do you do you feel that there are um accessibility issues with the platform you're on
0: uh no there would not be uh accessibility problems at all it's a it's a wonderfully set up um um facility and I'm so impressed. And and you have all patients have the op or clients or, or uh, subscribers they're sometimes referred to. Um, everyone has the option of having sessions that are visual, that are just by phone or even just by text. Uh, and so once in a while, I'll get somebody who is shy about being seen. Uh, For whatever reason, and they prefer just the telephone session and others uh, even had one who uh, was so uh, sensitive about being in therapy, uh, we did totally text um, sessions, and it it worked out very well, but it's very easy to access and and, uh, uh, the accessibility is is, uh, not an issue at all.
2: Cool. I've thought about doing it on the side, so I didn't know if it would work in terms of documentation and all of that or not.
0: Yes. You, you, you take care of your own documentation. And uh, I in fact have uh, the computer that I actually see people with or communicate through. And then I have a separate um, computer in which I document uh, as I go along. And that means that the, the, patient or client's uh, information is uh, extremely secure, because that computer is not connected to the internet. So no way can anyone have access to anything I've recorded. This is Jason. I just wanted to step in real quick because as as Ron's sometimes technical assist, um, I get to play with the site from a screen reader perspective. And I I just wanted to um, second that the accessibility is very good, even to the point where um, if you needed to, you can even export your
1: session data into a spreadsheet or something like that if you really wanted to grab it off the site and look at it in your own way. Um, and. You even
2: have the ability to get an app uh, for, I think, both iOS and Android, and use it via the app. I don't know as much about the app, but I just wanted to add that little bit. Awesome.
1: It seems that this is this is where the direction of um, at least um, tele- at least the direction that therapeutic services are going in. Do we? Do you? The two of you think that you know? In in a couple of years from now, there'll be very little actual in-office visits.
2: From my perspective, so one thing to let everyone know, um, I just learned this at a staff meeting last week, is that it has been passed. And in terms of Medicaid specifically, they are covering telehealth and mental health telehealth indefinitely. Um, We kind of were wondering, we knew it would last at least until I think the winter of twenty two but it has been extended. And I, I think this is going to become a large way of the future. I don't know that it's going to be the way. I definitely have clients who are saying to me, oh, I just wish we could be in the office. You know, I feel like the vibe is different. If I can sit in person, I feel like we pick up on more from each other and there is a different level of communication and connection within office. There are definitely, um, I'm on a Facebook group for counselors in the Maryland, D.C., um, where maybe Virginia area. And there are definitely people looking to find providers who are doing in-person work. And I think, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later, in terms of some of the therapeutic modalities like EMDR, which is often used for trauma, there is a physical component of that because yeah. the person is either holding devices or they're looking at lights. And I don't know yet if they have found, found a way to turn that into telehealth. I have seen that there are therapists that are sending equipment to their clients and somehow doing it virtually, but I don't think, I don't think that it will ever go away completely to do the in-person. What do you think, Ron?
0: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, even uh, my own personal physician um, has uh, discovered that he can actually um, see a lot of his patients um, through the the uh, tele. Uh, communication system and uh, is quite surprised at how well it works. But there are occasions where, um, you know, you can show your doctor uh, the rash on your ankle uh, or whatever uh, through the, the system. But um, there are occasions where, uh, and he said he can actually even uh, uh, check uh, people's, um, uh, statistics, the, the uh, blood pressure and temperature and, and all of that through the uh, through the system, which is uh, very surprising. But I do think, uh, I would say that for a person who is not visually impaired, I would say that they probably would gain a great deal of what you were talking about, Jessica, um, through the the computerized system because they, you can see the expressions on the person's face um, and you can gather from their facial expressions and whatnot uh, a great deal. But I, I think probably for a visually impaired person, and I hope I'm not going to sound uh, biased. Um, I, I could imagine it could be much more uh, of an opportunity uh, in a, a live face-to-face, if you will, um, office visit. I could see how the vibes, if you will, could be much more uh, assuring and supportive and comforting. So I don't think it will ever go away. And and I'm glad about that, actually.
2: In terms of the feel of doing in-person versus Zoom for me, I don't feel like I'm missing out on much. What I do notice Mm -hmm. is just the difference of working in a group practice versus working for an agency. I might have gotten visual feedback about my client's appearance or how they came in from day to day from Mm -hmm. staff that I don't get now, although I am often being a preceptor for nurse practitioner students right now. So it's really great because I can say to them, Hey, what do I need to know? What did I miss out on? Mm. And I get a little feedback, which is really cool. But actually, one of the clients who is really, really missing in person doesn't know that I am a blind therapist. I I kind of wrestled with how to disclose. It's awkward. Um, Thankfully, I met another blind therapist in the area who told me how she did it. And I said, thank you. I'm borrowing this. That's, That's perfect. But in the beginning, I didn't. Because although it is really simple to walk out into a waiting room, greet a client, and boom, you've got that immediate awareness and you don't have to have a big conversation about it. I didn't you want know. to take up their time talking about it yes. on Zoom. Um, now I just say, hey, just, just a heads up, I'm blind. So if my camera's looking a little funky, just let me know and I'll fix it. Um, but I just want to give you a heads up so you don't think I'm ignoring you or staring at the ceiling.
0: Was um, <laughs> that the, was that the <laughs> method that she, she suggested? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, and it's yeah. perfect yeah yep. perfect yep. well you know um that kind of fits into a, another um, uh, avenue of of uh, getting a therapist and selecting one uh, sometimes people feel that they have to um, they really need to know a lot about the therapist and a uh, personal mm-hmm personal stuff and uh and so there are i've even seen uh in online i've seen suggestions about how to get a therapist and some talk about interviewing the therapist and all Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff and uh, that may i think that has pros and cons because uh, there are situations where Um, a patient can presume, and I I know it happens amongst uh, the blind community, um, the sighted community presumes limitations galore. And and same with um, people who are searching for a therapist um they have certain ideas about what a therapist is and what they do and all that so they think they need to know if the what the religion is and uh, all of this kind of stuff you know and and i i think of a situation where um when i was supervising in a substance abuse uh, hospital and i sat in on a uh, a therapy group that i was uh, i was supervising the the uh facilitator of the group and uh, and he assured me that he would tell patients that I'm an observer and I would not interact with them but he was a little resentful that I was a new supervisor you know and so he uh, one of the patients in the group said uh, say can I ask you a question oh and here I, we go and yeah and I tried I just looked at the facilitator and he ignored me intentionally. And, uh, we became great friends later on. I want you to know, but in any event, he, uh, he intentionally ignored me. And so the patient said, so, um, uh, are you going to tell me or what? And so I said, um, I'll tell you what, um, if you can tell me how my answer would be helpful to you, I gotcha. might, I might yep. consider telling mm-hmm. you. And one of the other astute, um, Uh, patients in the group said, oh, come on, Jack, knock it off. We know what you're up to. You've been avoiding treatment ever since you've been here. So we know what's going to happen. If he says he's alcoholic too, you're going to say, then how can you help me? Because you've got the same problem. And if he says he's not alcoholic, you're going to say, how can you help me? Because you You don't
2: understand. Yeah.
0: And, and so in many ways, I think that uh, we often offer uh, a patient a lot more latitude, um, by they're not having to, uh, presume things about us, you know, uh, asking one's religion. And, and, and in fact, uh, uh, Jason and I, we shared an office in, uh, in a building in which there was a therapist downstairs a kind of a new therapist. And she told the landlord that she had a, uh, a client who came in a a gay couple or lesbian couple And um, and they actually thought that they should have custody of their children. And she said she had to let them know that she just felt that uh, because of her own religion, uh, they they could not support anything other than uh, heterosexual parents. And it would not be in the child's best interest. And that's
2: why clients ask about the demographics of their therapist. because You want to know that you are going to be in a supportive environment. You know, it's Interesting. Yep. I'm, I'm sorry I don't want to interrupt you if no, you have um, it's interesting because I have had the experience with the um, substance use questions and and I kind of deflect in the same way like I you know I see you as a person um, I have had a lot of experience in this field um, do you and they they actually I found that a lot of my clients really liked the blindness aspect that it was sort of a bonus for them because they so often felt visually judged by people. And so that Mm -hmm. sort of almost leveled the playing field for us. But what I am learning now, and it's still new for me, is I am learning specifically that, yes, people are looking for LGBT-friendly therapists, but I've also been learning a lot, thanks to my local Facebook group, um, that transgender people or gender non-conforming people are looking for an entirely different category um, and when we call them gender affirming therapists and often not always but often 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 they do want them to be people who are also gender Mm -hmm. non-conforming because a lot of things are going on that they need that people have to have very specific training and knowing how to do it like writing the letters for um gender surgery, writing the letters, I I learned, and I didn't know this. I had a client who was referred to me from a tiny little doctor's office um, in the Northeast part of the state because she wanted hormone therapy and that her primary care referred her to therapy. And what I learned, because I didn't know this is that you do not need any sort of certification Letter, anything like that from a therapist. All you need is a doctor who will prescribe you the medication. You don't have to prove anything. Um, You have to go through a lot of different things in order to get the surgeries and different things like that. But these are things that I I think just a lot of us don't have the cultural competence to know. And so what I'm learning now is you either need to go through paid consultation or be a part of the community, the LGBT, specifically trans community, um, to really know all the ins and outs enough to help people thoroughly and quickly. Cause that's part of it too, is the timeliness of it, getting people to where they want to be without them having to do a lot of holdup while you learn or research or anything mm-hmm. like that. So there's definitely, definitely mm-hmm. a word I would recommend if a person who is specifically is seeking perhaps surgery, look up gender affirming therapists and you will find them. Um, mm-hmm
1: well sure. so let's take a let's take a step backwards um because i think I think it would be um really it would behoove our our listening audience to understand that there are mo- many types i think a lot of people who aren't familiar with uh, with therapeutic situations think, oh you know there's a therapist, they can talk about anything they can walk you through anything." And sometimes, you know, you really need a specific style of therapy, especially as Jess just pointed out, gender affirming. So, could we could we kind of talk a little bit about the different categories of therapy and the different styles?
0: Yeah, there are so many. Um. Yeah, I can say that when um, I can remember, I've worked in in different uh, psychiatric settings. I worked in a a for-profit hospital, which was very uh, elegant and whatnot. And, and I worked in uh, not-for-profit hospitals. And I remember being um, in a uh, uh, the for-profit hospital. And um, I was thinking about, uh, Jess was talking about being able to have your colleagues uh, tip you off and whatnot. And so it it was very helpful in many respects to have this multidisciplinary team kind of uh, support. And we would come together in team and we would discuss our patients and what their needs were. And we would sometimes cross interact. Uh, I might do group therapy for, uh, for Jessica's patient. And, and uh, but she would be the primary therapist for the okay. patient. And I remember um, sitting in a, a team meeting at, at one point in which the psychiatrist said um, that he was very helpful to his patient, who to me, it was clearly the patient was struggling with coming out. And, mm. but, but this heterosexist uh, psychiatrist convinced him that he just needed more experience and that it was just a phase he was going through and he could be discharged. He had been suicidal and and that's why he was an inpatient and uh, that all he needed to do was just uh, do some more uh, dating of, of girls and whatnot and things would be fine. So the patient came into my group and he announced to uh, all of the patients there that he was so excited, so happy because the psychiatrist just took care of the problem that he had. And he felt so much relief now, and he was going to be discharged uh, in the next day. And he was so happy. And I thought, my God, you know, how damaging uh, that was. And another, I had a patient who was married, and he also had a a male lover on the side, and he was had all kinds of conflicts around that. And this clinical psychologist who was in my multidisciplinary team said, what, what are you talking about? He can't be gay. He's married. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it suggests to you that, you know, how deficient uh, one can be uh, in terms of being a, a therapist. And um, so it, as, as Jessica was pointing out, it is so important to have somebody who um, can, Clearly relate. And so, I, the one thing I'll end here with is that um, the platform through which I work now has two uh, avenues. And one is called the Pride Avenue, and that addresses uh, people with uh, gay, lesbian, trans, gender, et cetera, um, issues. And then the other is one that is general. And so one can, can, uh, they can go on, anyone can go online and they can look at all of the therapist's uh, bios and read the background history and they can select, Uh, they can either just be automatically transferred or they can select. And so uh, very Often there is opportunity for them to recognize that they can uh, work with me um, with uh, who can address uh, issues that are not just heterosexist, if you will. If I may.
2: um
1: Oh, go ahead, Jeff, and then
2: I'll go. I think in terms of therapy today, I think it is much more client centered. Um, I think, you know, the stereotype is, you know, you're gonna go to therapy and you're gonna talk to the psychoanalyst who says, and how does that make you feel? And let's <laughs> exactly. let's yeah. let's ask about your mother and how was your childhood? And yes, family of origin stuff, we talk about that a little bit, but there is so much more to therapy, and there are so many styles. So there's, um, I mentioned a few earlier, there's narrative therapy. And the way I like to look at narrative therapy is it teaches you how to rewrite your story. And maybe, yes, you have these experiences, but maybe if we pull them apart and look at them and, and you write differently, either write, literally write it or speak, talk about it, explore it differently. Maybe you can see a whole nother path about it that helps you to kind of if, if you can narrate your story differently, maybe you feel better and maybe you do some healing through that. There's um, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is one that's often used for eating disorders and some personality stuff, relational, relational relationship issues that kind of teaches you how to conduct yourself differently within relationships and communication. So maybe you often just, kind of pop off at people or become incredibly defensive or assume that people are all sort of being negative toward you. And it teaches you how to both look at things differently and how to communicate in a way that will help you to have stronger, more healthy relationships. Um, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, will kind of help you to look at you, you come in with the issue of I'm doing this thing, this thing is happening, and I don't want it to happen. So you kind of go back and go, okay, when you start to, and, and we'll, we'll take, for example, I'm working with somebody who's got anger stuff going on right now. So we talk about, okay, when the anger starts to come up in you, can you feel it happening before you become explosive and want to break the TV? Okay, great. So let's look at that what are the things that set that off in you and how do we change your responses? How do we change, how do we stop right there at that thing that is going to inevitably escalate and set you off and help you to have a way, a strategy to say, I'm going to step back. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to do something different. And by doing that different thing, maybe it changes all of the outcome and you don't want to break the TV. You just want to watch it now. Um, (laughs) there, um, There, there are so many styles. There's couples therapy and family therapy that teach people how to have better communication or help to mediate so that people can sort of break down where the the miscommunication is, where the message is being received incorrectly so that, um, you know, so that, so that maybe stuff doesn't escalate. There's a ton, ton, ton of stuff regarding trauma work, um, and so many things they're seeking safety, um. I, I am not super versed in that, but there is um, EMDR, which actually kind of helps you to interrupt your, your brain a little bit when you're starting to feel re-traumatized. And in going through that, it, um, it, it sort of helps you to, to work through. As, as far as I understand it, maybe we can bring uh, Lauren in to sort of explain what that experience was, was like for her. But the way that I understand it, it sort of helps you to have a pause and sort of a reset so that you can work with the trauma feelings that are coming up and kind of come through and and feel more healed.
1: I, I think that's actually a really good idea. We should, we should definitely bring Lauren into the conversation and then maybe we can explore um what are some of the things we should be asking ourselves, you know, in a, you know, an intake session or a first session with a therapist and mm-hmm. then maybe a few sessions in, because I know I've heard, and, and I'm sure you must've heard this um, Ron and Jess along the way, you know, I was with this therapist and it just wasn't working. It didn't feel mm-hmm. right. But people when, when asked the next question, they often can't put their finger on it. What was not right? You know, mm-hmm. and I would imagine for every person that comes back to therapy and tries with another therapist, there's gotta be at least three or four who don't come back that because mm-hmm. that experience didn't work for them. They kind of give up on therapy. So let's bring Lauren in. I, now, love and being, then we'll,
2: I, I just want to say, sorry, I love being, I love being fired. I always say, Oh, I got fired. And I like it because I really respect that somebody can say this is what I need whether it is I want a black therapist or you just aren't hearing me and I want somebody different or I want my old therapist or whatever. I like that cuz that's a place for growth. Awesome. So feel comfortable right, well, firing us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome Lauren. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Whatever you feel comfortable sharing.
3: Uh, hi, my name is Lauren. Um Nice to meet everybody. Um, I was a client, I guess for gosh, seven years. I did three years of CBT cognitive behavioral therapy. I can never say that. Um, through my university's counseling center, I really went into therapy, wanting to work on like coming out issues and family relationship issues. And I had some trauma stuff that I wasn't ready to really explore. And that's kind of what you guys were saying. Um, I think you can have different therapists for different needs. And so I had a really nice CBT therapist. She was very kind and, but she really didn't push me or call me out on my, if if I was, if I, she told me to do some homework and I didn't do the homework, she didn't really give me any consequences. I mean, she's not my mother, but I think a good therapist might be, or a different therapist might explore, okay, what, what was hard for you about this assignment? You know, she never really called me out on that. And so then I, I decided, we decided that I was going to terminate. I just really, I think as a client, you, you can tell when the therapist isn't getting, you're, you're just not connecting on a deep level. Um, and so a few years later I went to a trauma based, um, you know, sexual assault type therapy and we specifically did EMDR, um, which they are doing online now. I haven't done it online. I did it in person. Um, but I was very, very lucky in that I got a, Uh, lesbian and disabled therapist. Um, I did not ask for that, but I was just, there happened to be a disabled uh, gay therapist working at that center. And, you know, we were matched together and I was so fortunate to be able to work with her. And we also did what is called um, somatic uh, re-experiencing, where basically you, when you start to feel the emotion, when you start to feel anger, you say, okay, what does this feel like in your body? Where is this in your body? What does it feel like? What does it feel? What does that energy, that 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 force of anger, that force of overwhelmed feeling? What does that feel like? And can you feel it cresting? And it sort of teaches you um, resilience and just sort of shows you that you can get through what feels very overwhelming and very, uh, I don't know, maybe you feel flooded with emotions and it can just sort of help pull you back from the brink. So sorry if that was too long of an explanation, but that's my.
2: I want more. Experience. Can you tell us what EMDR was like?
3: Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. As a blind yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Um, so essentially, what I would do is I had these two buzzers in each hand, and EMDR activates each both hemispheres of the brain. So I was specifically doing work around sexual abuse, and so that it's not like they ask you to re-experience the trauma. So if you if we did EMDR right now, I would have a buzzer in each hand, and they, the therapist would turn it on, and you can do it at different speeds. So you might start out with it just vibrating every second. E- e- and then the therapist would say, okay, so what are you feeling right now? And I would say, well, I'm speaking on a panel. My hands are a little bit shaky. I'm I'm not really able to keep track of my thoughts. And she would just sort of, you do a lot of grounding exercises. And then she would not even necessarily ask questions. She would really let the client lead the session where you would want to go. And I would say, well, earlier this morning, I was thinking about my relationship with my mom and and, and just, just general things. It's very, very stream of consciousness. And um, my therapist was very casual with her EMDR. She would sometimes just say, do you want to do bilateral stimulation around this issue? And I would either say yes or no. So she would leave it up to me, but a lot of other people are a lot more, we will do EMDR on this day and we'll have 10 sessions. And so it's just going to be really up to the therapist and the client, but it was very accessible. And, um, there are also ways that you can also do tapping with the therapist taps on your knees. That didn't feel very safe to me, but I know that that has happened for, other clients. So,
2: and what would happen when she stimulated the vibrations?
3: Um, your, your heart rate would increase your heart rate would increase your activation sometimes would increase. If, if you, if the therapist could tell that you were getting more immersed in the memory, depending on, you do a thing called the window of tolerance. So, you know, if you're talking very calmly, um, sort of, sort of about what, what you can tolerate without getting activated, like really, mm-hmm. um, like angry or, or emotional or, or on the other end, like very shut down or, you know, not engaged, like dissociated. Um, and so you want to widen that window of tolerance. And so she would do a lot of like asking, okay, what, where are you at? And sometimes she would be like, you would ask you a question and I would not even remember the question. And she would, that was her, how she would say, okay, you're dissociated right now. We need mm-hmm. to take a step back. So it really requires a lot of presence from the client and the therapist, which, I mean, you could say that in all therapy, but it's EMDR is, is, is very intense work. Did it's that awesome. lead
1: to, did that lead to you changing behaviors in, you know, in the 100%. other sectors of your life?
3: Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I was able to, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're angry, you're like, oh, I'm so mad about the Uber Eats and it's not here. And it's like, well, you're not really mad about that. And I was able no. to be like, oh yeah. I'm starting to feel really uh, out of my body. And I would just have more, more mindfulness, more, oh, this is, you know, before you even do EMDR, your therapist says, when you're feeling angry, my therapist would say, does this feel familiar? Does this feel familiar to you? Is this what you experienced when you were, you know, I'm working with PTSD, when you were being traumatized. And that is really helpful to me to be like, oh, I am feeling how I felt when I was betrayed or when I was abandoned. And that is very, um, comforting and helps you feel helped me feel more connected to to myself and helps me be more present in relationships i can say hey i'm feeling really activated right now can we take can we take a step back or and then you can tell your partner or your friends what you need hey i need i need you to distract me i need you to put on some music and we can dance around so i feel more grounded in my body
1: going back to the cbt cuz i think this would be helpful if you're if you're okay with sharing yeah sure um, How how long into it did did you how long into it was the feeling that maybe this isn't the the style of therapy or the therapist um, that's really going to push me to the next question, the next level that I need to be? And, and, you know, if you don't mind sharing, how long did you stay in it and what kind of things led you to, to really ultimately make that final decision?
3: Uh, about three years. I did one year with an intern and two years with the director of the social work program. I can't remember why they put me with her, but she, oh, you know why? Because uh, my school was only offering 12. I can't remember why they did this, but they were only offering me 12 sessions a year. And that really stressed me out because I'm like, I need more therapy than that. That's only 12 weeks. That's, I guess that's a false. Anyway, they basically were like, yeah, you can come indefinitely," But I really wasn't being, I wasn't being pushed and I wasn't being, but I, w- I felt very, I was really scared to to be back on my own again and not I didn't know what it would mean if I left that therapist. So I felt like I was being heard and listened to, but I didn't really feel like I was given any direction. So I think I knew within probably the first year because I would my if anything I was getting worse. I I was being more reclusive. I was not going to classes. I was frankly failing out of school. And my therapist knew all this, and she knew that I was just not I was not able to attend classes. I was not functioning well, and she didn't really do anything about that. Not that I know necessarily what she should have done, but that in retrospect is a pretty big red flag that we, our needs were really not um, meeting, meshing well. But I was scared that if I she was my accountability. So if I stopped going to her. I would just have me and, and I didn't know what that would look like. Um, so eventually she just told me, Oh, you're, you're good now. You're, you know, I, well, I think eventually I said, um, I don't think we're connecting. And she said, yeah, I feel the same way, which uh, if you feel the same way, why wouldn't you bring that up sooner? But that's neither here nor there. So I eventually was the one that ended it and we ended it that same session. I was just like, Nope, let's rip the band aid off We're, we're just, we're just going to terminate. And I decided that I was done with therapy. And then, um, Two years later, I was really, really struggling. I was really not doing well. I was frankly very suicidal. Um, and I knew that if I didn't make some kind of drastic change and then just do something, I I, I wanted to be um, impatient, but I didn't know what that would look like. So I just ended up reaching out to a local uh, crisis center and they were able to get me in session the next day. And, and then from there, I was able to be seen weekly. Um, but it it really was desperation that made me go back. I don't know if that answered your question very well.
1: It's your experience that it's that the answer that, that we were looking for. Um so let's but yeah let's I would say, say
3: sorry that you are gonna know pretty quickly whether it works for you or not. So
1: trust your gut. Trust your gut. So yeah. back to back to our two therapist um point of view is how? What are you looking for in a client? Like, what what signs tell you that there, there's not a connection? That maybe you know terminating and, and pers- you know, prescribing a, a different um, clinical situation would be best for the patient.
0: Well, for, for me, I I am thinking back of uh, Jessica making a comment about being fired, and uh, which is a a great uh, thing to consider. I think in the uh, intake session, very often you, that's where you're starting to determine which modality could be beneficial for a specific patient. And uh, sometimes uh, you may venture in that direction and discover that, ah, this is not uh, fitting uh, for this particular patient. Sometimes the patient will tell you that it's not fitting or that, that it's not uh, helping them to uh, to achieve what they're hoping to achieve, and uh, so as I said before, one size doesn't fit all uh, in terms of therapists, and the same with uh, the modalities. Um, if you, uh, I find that uh, I love to do cognitive uh, behavioral therapy with with uh, folks, but there are times that uh, people are looking for other things, and when I realize that um that maybe they ought to be seen by somebody who has more expertise in a, a given area i can let them know and the platform i'm on allows me to to actually uh, make a referral but um uh, I have had, pa- I had one patient who went through four therapists and I was the fifth and he fired the first four therapists. And I thought, well, it's only a matter of time that, uh, that that's going to happen to me. But, um, we, uh, we continued and I have been seeing him now for well over a year and, uh, watching him grow and, uh, and so I think he eventually he eventually became uh, confident that he uh, that he was with the right therapist at long last. And I, I there were times in the beginning when I thought, you know, uh, fire me today, please, because you are so difficult, <laughs> you know? And, um, but I, uh, hung in there with him because I realized that there was uh, some underlying trauma that got him where he was. And, uh, so I'm glad that I did that, but I think from the, from the, uh, intake session, you, that's where you begin to have a sense of, of probably, um, uh, the modality that that would fit but i i don't think one size uh fits all and there are some people who say well this is what i do i do cognitive behavioral and uh, or i do emdr or i do you know um it's kind of nice if you if you're able to uh do some or, or or all of those i'm not one who can do all of those but in any event uh, uh i think you uh It's helpful to let the patient know. And I do say in my biography that they hopefully read at the onset that uh, if ever you get the feeling that it's not a good fit, uh, I invite you to be very comfortable in letting me know that. And some patients will. But some patients don't feel uh, comfortable and they feel that's too confrontational and they just can't tell you. So the next thing you know, boom, your patient has left you. Uh, You get a little disappear.
1: yeah, Yeah, they just
0: disappear. So then you go into the list of of your disappearances, if you will. And they have. They sometimes put the reason in, and sometimes they'll say things like, uh, "I wanted a different perspective," or um, "I prefer to have a female," uh, or, or whatever. You know, they'll give you the specific reasons that that they don't feel comfortable with you. And uh, so, I always say, "Do do tell me," and if you think a, another therapist would be better for you, uh, do let me know. So I share. Jessica, feeling about, you know, if you fire me, that means that's a good thing that you are able to know uh, what you don't want, you know, and, uh, and can uh, hopefully find what you do want, you
1: know. And Jess, how about those patients that, They they just don't feel right, but they don't know what you know. They don't think that they're depressed. They don't think that they're really angry, although they can get angry at times, et cetera, et cetera. That just really don't know, but they know they don't feel the way they're supposed to feel.
2: So it's tricky. Um, Sometimes people come through, and eventually we can put our finger on it. What I really struggle with is the disparities in healthcare based on medical insurance, and so I feel horrible with my medicaid patients who medicaid says you need to have a mental health diagnosis within at least in maryland within two sessions i can't code them as f99 on on like deferring um after two sessions and so i had an experience where i was working with someone who ultimately actually fired me because she realized that she wanted a therapist who was a person of color and i'm like that is great i'm glad you feel safe telling me that Um, that's awesome um and I've had people that have said, I'm, I'm going to backtrack one second and say that in the intake process, one of the questions we ask is SNAP, strengths, needs, abilities, and preferences. Um, the needs start to tell you what they're really looking for in terms of why they're with you. And the preferences, I always tell them, that's sort of like if you've had experiences in therapy or if you have sort of an idea of what how, what how the look of what you want your therapist to be, whether it's in personality characteristics and demographics, whatever. And I will have people say, actually, I wanted a black female therapist, but I like you. So I'm going to stay with you. And you get that immediately. So, you know, and, and I will say to them, like, listen, keep assessing this. If this ever becomes a thing where you feel like culturally, I can't get it. That's okay. I am cool with that. We will figure it out with you. But um, in terms of people who don't know, and who don't have a specific diagnosis, but who want treatment, it's so hard. And and it it's, I feel terrible sometimes, because I find that there are people who kind of want to get some help with communication issues and with how to interact within relationships and kind of let go of past stuff. But it's not anything that even codes them with adjustment disorder or with depression yeah. even mild and, so and you're I locked have to, into that
1: kind of system
2: I have yeah and I'm like I don't know what to do because ethically I, I don't I don't want to lie I don't want to give you a diagnosis that isn't real that's not cool that's unacceptable to do and yet if you had private insurance you could probably do this and we could go sans diagnosis for a longer period of time and I think that can be really hard um, I would say, If you have some good sense of some of the things that lead you to therapy, especially talking to our audience of blind people who are largely, um, according to the the stats, unemployed, we will assume on Medicaid and Medicare, hopefully both, because Medicare in and of itself does not give great coverage. It is incredibly hard to find completely free therapy without having to do your copays, And if you go into a hospital setting, it's even worse because um, hospital rates are changing daily, but knowing, okay, these are, I, I always ask, what's your sleep like? What's your appetite like? Um, how long have you been feeling depressed? And if you can give me answers that help me to code you, even with single episode, it's so much easier to keep you in therapy until we get to the heart of, because I find that often people don't know the big stuff. People don't know necessarily that they've experienced trauma because you're so used to living it that you don't know until you talk to somebody like, oh, that wasn't okay the way that I was treated. You mean living with my power constantly shut off because my parents didn't pay the bills because they were using drugs, living in abandoned homes. You mean that's scary. That is hard. Cause I thought it was just like, I, it was just how my life was and I had to just deal with it. And I'm like, no, that's trauma that's recurring ongoing trauma. Um, so yeah, I, I it's, it's hard sometimes and it's people who need it. I feel like anybody who needs and wants therapy deserves to have it. And it's so hard financially and what these insurance companies, specifically the government insurance companies to get people what they need.
1: So, Nat, what I'm going to ask now is um, for our uh, attendees, if you have any questions, please put your hand up. We're going to check in with Nat in a few minutes and see how many there are. Uh, Ron and Jess, whoever wants to go first, I know you can't give a specific, these are the 15 questions you have to ask yourself, but can you, can you give us some helpful things as we approach going to, you know, going to a therapist, these are the things that you want to disclose. These are the things that you should have in mind so that it makes it easier for you to, to find the right therapist and for the therapist to really know how to gauge, how to help you. I hope that's not unfair. Um, And if it is, we'll go in a different direction.
2: No, um, I think one of the things, and and it's already come up, is knowing, are there specific things um, in terms of your identity that are important to you? So for somebody who's coming out, they might want an LGBT therapist. They might want somebody who really has lived that experience in some way and understands kind of all these various things that, that come with coming out. Maybe if you're already out and it's not a big deal and it's only one little aspect of your identity at this point, and it's not the the pivotal thing that therapy is related to, you might not want that, or that might not be such a big deal to you. Um, um, Like we said, in terms of gender affirming therapists, if I, I was basically kind of schooled by, by my local people, If the client I received was already had transitioned and was living full time as a female, and that was just one kind of thing about her, but she was really kind of immersed in in her life, maybe we could have worked on some of her trauma stuff. But because the pivotal thing right now for her was kind of having her physical identity matching who she is... I wasn't the right person for her. I wasn't the right fit for her. So knowing kind of where you are and what, what do you need? So do you need someone who is disability aware? I have a friend who was going to a therapist for a while, thought there had been good rapport mentioned kind of this whole, like I I would like to have kids. And the therapist said, and how would that work? So boom, you've just shut, got, gotten shut down And lost that relationship with someone who actually didn't have the cultural competence to know a thing about your disability. Um, you know, if you knowing. are going through trauma stuff, knowing that you're a therapist, are you trauma certified? What, what are your specialties? I think that's a really good question.
1: Yeah, you know, when I when I lost my eyesight and the, the state gave me, it's funny she, that Lauren said 12 visits, the state gave me 12 visits. Oh. And just at the point where I really thought I was really getting some good work done, you know, those first couple of sessions was just identifying how I really felt about it. Um, you know, once the 12th session was up and I had to find a therapist and I kept hearing, you know, oh, you know, I'm not really um, I'm not really good with LGBTQ. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I've been out for years. I'm fine. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. That might come up in therapy. You might want to find. And then I would find an LGBTQ therapist who really didn't feel comfortable about speaking about disability, specifically blindness. I don't know enough about it. And so, you know, I must have met with like seven people. Before I found a therapist that was comfortable with me, and I was comfortable with her, um, Ron, do you have any any thoughts on this before we see how many questions we have?
0: I um, it just occurred to me when you were mentioning the uh, the discomfort that uh, a therapist has with uh, a disability such as blindness. It's um, it's hard for me to uh, to uh, Get, to actually uh, comprehend where a therapist could be at to uh, to have um, that kind of a, a discomfort but it, it is so important for did you say that that therapist I, there were actually two
1: in, in that process and and how i had approached it when i went in was you know i, I did the 12 sessions that they that they gave me and i realized i had never grieved my eyesight. And, and we were just doing some good work about that. And I really want to, to get into that. And I, and I really want to stop the anger that I feel that I finally have placed on the fact that, you know, I thought I accepted blindness, but I really haven't, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so the therapist would say, well, I don't, you know, both therapists that I encountered basically said this, a version of I don't have enough experience dealing with a blind person. So you should, you know, I, I suggest you find a therapist, A little bit more geared to that
2: and yet it's grief it's grief it's it's not the disability it's grief yeah anger is a stage of grief well anger is a stage of yeah you needed to get from the anger to the acceptance yeah
0: yeah and as i think jess said earlier it's important to know yourself uh you know you're know where you're at as a therapist and so often, um, I have seen situations, uh, both inpatient and uh, in aftercare settings, where the therapist was not really aware of of uh, where their own boundaries were, even you know mm, limitations. And- yeah. And, and they would uh, they would kind of impose on the patient or project onto the patient their own stuff. You know, we uh, I remember we had in our multidisciplinary team, we had uh, an art therapist who who did wonderful things with patients. Um, but every time we would get into multidisciplinary team, um she would jump into, well, did you check with their trauma background? And and you know, it's it's so important to find out if they had sexual child abuse and whatnot. And so it was evident to all of us that she had unresolved issues. And so she was presuming that everybody who came through the door um, had the same experience, you know. And she clearly didn't um, didn't know her boundaries because she would uh, impose that uh, onto the patients that she dealt with, you know, and it was problematic. It, it had to be addressed and it was, but there is that, uh, that situation where uh, if the therapist is not clear of their own boundaries and it, it's great to be able to say, well, you know, I'm not comfortable with uh, with blindness uh, or, or even I'm not comfortable with, with gayness, if you will, <laughs> you know, Um
1: it, yeah, it, no, I'd rather be told that up front yeah, than yeah. be sessions in and realize, you know, this person is making, you know, a, a breathing pattern. I obviously can't see them to say that they're making a face, but, you know, there's something in this person's tone that, mm-hmm. you know, they won't tell me that they're uncomfortable with LGBTQ. But obviously, every time I mention something, there's, there's a shift. Yes. You know, I'd rather yes. know that up front. I wasn't going to try to yes. convince any of these therapists, hey, you know, I'm not really you know, I'm not really here to talk about LGBTQ issues. It might come up in passing because that's how I live. But, you know, right there, I don't want to convince you to take me out. Can I say something really quick? Please, yeah.
3: Oh, So I would just want to say, I forgot to mention that when I was having my counseling, my 12 mandatory sessions or whatever, they didn't say anything to me about trauma. They were like, oh yeah, you're depressed. Let's go through this worksheet and go through all, look, look, you scored on the 75th percentile. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really depressed. I, I better work, like, It really, I think, um, I wasn't seeing a a psychologist or anything, so I don't know. I can't speak to the whole diagnosis thing, but I would say as a client, you might deal with being misdiagnosed or you might identify with different, um, you might go into your therapist being like, I think I have ADHD because a lot of things can present to look like different things, you know? And so I feel like when you put all these labels on it, you're kind of closing the doors on Important conversations.
2: I think it's important for therapists to be comfortable saying, you know what, I didn't see this, but let's talk about possibly changing where we are with your diagnosis. Because I've done that. I've said, you know, I know we talked about adjustment disorder with depression because of when your husband left, but as we go through this, it sounds like you're actually experiencing a ton of PTSD. And saying, and having a, I am really open with the clients. How does this feel? How does, do you feel like this fits you? One thing before we go to questions, I just wanted to give out a few resources for people. Um, If you're looking for therapists, I am a huge fan of psychologytoday.org. And part of what I really like about it is you can check the boxes for the things that you want. So we fill out our profiles and it doesn't come up necessarily for you, so not everybody who sees me is going to be like, "Oh, LGBT therapist, cool. Oh, she's got a disability, but I can check those boxes." So if you specifically check boxes that you want, that it's it's like a match. We we get matched up. You can check the boxes and say your zip code, your your medical um, health health insurance so that you can find out who will take your coverage so you don't have to go through a bunch of crap trying to call and do you accept mine and is there anybody boom we're just going to pop up and it's a really commonly used site um there's another one thankfully lauren gave me some of these inclusivetherapists.com. you can actually search for somebody who is disability friendly um and then there's goodtherapy.org and i'm not fully aware of what that is but some of these sites, you know, look at our ratings, look at reviews. I encourage people to read reviews, not one, read a bunch of reviews. It's like looking for your doctors. And I always tell my clients, you know what, you're paying for this um, in some form or another. You deserve the best. And if you don't feel like the person you have is somebody that you're fully comfortable with and sort of sort of feel like you're getting some positive self-care when you step in that door or log into that Zoom session, then we either talk about it and figure out if there's something that I'm missing, or we figure out if it's something that just isn't a good fit for you. And there is nothing wrong with continuing to search until you find someone who you feel you really click with, because that's how the work's going to be done. You've got to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable. And anybody who even does an intake, I'm like, wow, you were comfortable enough to come and share some of your stuff with a complete stranger. And it's a huge deal and it's an honor. And it's it's a statement to people's readiness to, to, to get better.
0: You know, it's funny, um, The uh, I'm thinking about the assessment process. And I remember um, being in a nursing station of a hospital in which a psychiatrist was doing an assessment of a, an inpatient and as uh, uh, people were just going in and out, and she's asking this patient all kinds of personal things, and she's going down a list, and uh, a list of symptomatology, and, and she got, then she got to a place where she said to the patient, now, I'm sorry I have to ask this, but, but I have to, it's a routine question, and I have to ask everybody, what's your sexual orientation <laughs> and oh, and gone. And I thought, do you realize that you're through your apology that you are making a statement about your own views, you know? Uh, and obviously she didn't. She didn't, you know. And so the patient, oh, oh, I'm I'm straight, I'm straight, you know. And I thought, you know, and I saw many signs in this person that suggested to me that this person was not straight, if you will. Um, but, uh, but she lost an opportunity just by the way she did that assessment, you know? So uh, patients hear that, you know, they, they hear those uh, uh, or see it sometimes it's in the, in the facial thing if, if the person's visual, but um, but there's so much uh, in the assessment that uh, and that's a, that's a to me, I would have known immediately. This is not somebody I want working with me <laughs> You yeah. know, when she said that. Um, so the assessment is kind of a it reveals as well as um, obtains information. Uh, it does how it's coming out reveals uh, where the therapist is at, you know. All right.
1: Um, I'm sorry. I don't want to sound dismissive. That was a great comment. Uh, Nat. how many hands? Uh,
4: We uh, have nine, and it's 338.
1: (sighs) Wow. Okay. So I'm going to ask our questioners to be as brief as possible so we can get to as many as possible. Uh, Who's our first person?
4: Nora, you may go ahead and um,
2: unmute and ask your question, please.
4: Well, it's a quick comment, really, because um, what I was going to ask you at the beginning was I am kind of fit in in age-wise like where Ron is, but I have been a private practice psychologist um, and neuropsychologist, and I kept relating to a lot of the things you said. The only thing I would say is setting the agenda, helping the client figure out what they did and didn't want is huge and will serve them the rest of their lives. Um, Beyond that, I will just go ahead and send some information to uh, maybe the head of, of the BPI, You can send
1: it to membership, membership at blindlgbtpride.org. And any questions we don't get to, if you want to email them there, um, I'm sure Jess and Ron would take a look at them and see if they can answer them. But, Don, who do we have? (coughs) Excuse me, next.
4: Diana, (coughs) you may unmute and ask your question, please. Thank you. Um, My name is Diana Oliveira, and I live in Falls, George, Virginia. And, uh, it's basically, um, some, um, to share some information. I, um, use, uh, I'm doing therapy on, online in a service that is, uh, um, broadly, um, uh, uh, spoken about in NPR. So, you know, it's, uh, they have about 17,000 therapies there. So I went through the first one and, uh, it didn't, it didn't click. So because I'm used to therapy from the time I was like in my 20s, on and off. Um, I'm a straight woman. I don't have any uh, certain, you know, difficulties, uh, but I'm, I'm a okay. partial also. So I would like to say that this online service for whoever wants to know, it's awesome. I am loving it. Um, and uh, once I changed therapies, I got the second one and we clicked right away. And it's incredible. Um, I have the option of video or call. And also, she it's unlimited emails and texts and everything. So uh, she sends me a lot of reading material, which is incredible. So I'm very happy with the service. I don't use insurance for that. I never use insurance for my therapy sessions. And um, before, just for you guys to know, my my thoughts are that if you feel comfortable with your therapist and if you click, uh, it doesn't matter if it is to Zoom. I did uh, three years o- overseas. My therapist was overseas. We did, the, uh, at that time, the WhatsApp video every week, once, one hour a week. So um, I think that if you click with your therapist, it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, it's there. It's just the connection is there. That's my, my
1: well, what I'd like to say. Thank you so much, Diane. Um, we want to try to get to as many people as possible. All right. Who's next?
4: area code beginning with 614. Hi, this is Melody Holloway, Columbus, Ohio. Um, I was wondering what, how, I don't know if this is the right question for, I know it's picking the right therapist, but the how can we get the state departments of mental health, patient rights advocates, insurance companies to understand the the safety and care and accessibility needed in outpatient community mental health centers, inpatient hospital settings, IOPs, PHPs, as far as people with different types of disabilities and to understand that we don't always need a higher level of care but yet in different environments we need help i've had 32 inpatient hospitalizations over 16 years of different therapies so i you know i'm having a hard time being heard and understood
2: I would encourage you to look for assertive community treatment. It's also called ACT. And basically, it would give you wraparound services. And the entire focus of that is to keep people out of the hospitals because the hospital isn't helpful. The hospital is a holding period, a holding pattern for you to maybe get restabilized on meds. But it's not really beneficial. Look for an ACT because if you can find that, it helps with in-home it's sort of wraparound. So you can have the day program, you can have the in-home kind of PRP help. You can have all of those things that you need. And their entire focus, mobile mobile crisis, is to keep you out of the hospital and, and feeling feeling cared for and supported outside of an inpatient setting.
1: That's awesome, Jess. Thank you. Melody, I hope, um, I hope you can find that in your area and we can help you look for that if, if you want to yeah. contact me offline. Um, all right, who's next?
2: Um, Kevin, you can go ahead and and unmute and ask your question, please.
1: Hello. Um, Great presentation. Um, Just curious um, in terms of like number of sessions or frequency, like I've been to a couple of sessions with my therapist and just wondering how long should one like kind of wait until to kind of figure out if it clicks or not. And then um, it's kind of, I guess, the person was talking about um, the more kind of the CB or something when i'm wondering if that may that's effective for like communication relationship things or is that more for um kind of what the um, person was describing with trauma and things of that nature
2: it can be used for a lot of things um cbt if part of the communication issue is a behavioral response or like a sort of physical slash behavioral response it can really help um, it can CBT can help for trauma and then DBT dialectical behavioral therapy can also really really be helpful for for communication and sometimes just generic no specific style just somebody who understands communication and can sort of figure out what's going on and where the transactional kind of crosswires wires are within your relationship can help I do individual therapy and will occasionally I, I just last week had Um, a client's significant other come into the session. And it was great because we got to talk through sort of where their challenges are, but also really the amazing stuff that I've learned about their relationship from my client over the last few months. So hopefully that's helpful.
0: And also, Kevin, the number of sessions uh, can really vary. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes uh, therapy can be very short term and other times it turns out to be uh, much longer term um depending on what the issues are and um but it's important to have that discussion with your therapist um so that you're you have a sense of uh, i mean you can say you know um i'm hoping to uh, be in therapy for a short while and can i uh, can i get help uh if i have eight sessions or whatever you know um and unfortunately uh, insurance companies uh often dictate that and uh, will, uh-huh. will often say you're allowed to have to, you know when I work inpatient I can remember the days were set by the the uh, insurance companies uh-huh. and it was so frustrating because we that was the worst part of the job is having to uh, to defend a patient's need for treatment, and sometimes uh, people would say, "You know what? You need to exaggerate the uh, the symptoms for this kid who's in in dire need of treatment, or they're going to send him out in four days." Now uh, that that kind of thing. So you'd be talking with the insurance company, and you'd have to say. Well, uh, it looks like there's potential for suicidality here. There's still some suicidal ideation and so on. And there were certain buzzwords, unfortunately, that uh, had to be used in order to get approval from insurance companies who are out there dictating how much um, care this patient could have. It was terrible. But I would say and very important to upfront, uh, let the therapist know what your your thinking is too. And sometimes a short term thing can be achieved um, by a kind of a mutual agreement. Or um, uh, a therapist can tell you, you know, it's sounding like it's going to take a, a while to achieve what you need to achieve. You know.
2: I would say I heard you ask about knowing how long until you know if the therapist is the right fit, and you're going to know if you feel a little. Better, if you feel a little more hopeful, if you feel a little more heard. And if you don't, it's okay to say, you know, I wonder if if we're missing something here. I'm not feeling like we're doing well with rapport. I'm not feeling safe. I'm not feeling heard. Um, and maybe it is that you have a situation like Lauren experienced where it was helpful until it wasn't anymore. And it's up to both you and especially the therapist to say, you know what? It seems like you're hitting a place where maybe you need work with trauma. And I don't have that, but let me help to refer you to somebody who does.
1: I think one point too, I I think, um, I hope that, uh, the three of you would agree if you find yourself, you know, consistently thinking about how to phrase something, what you're going to say, and more importantly, what maybe you're not going to say, then it's, it's probably not a good fit.
0: Are you talking about the, uh, from the client, from the patient? Yeah. From the client perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and also we probably should point out there are such a thing as iatrogenic therapists, and right. those are therapists who um, do more harm than help. Mm-hmm. We're <laughs> not
2: all good ethical you know, people,
0: yeah. And you know, I've for over the years I've worked with uh, so many different disciplines, and and um, and seen so many different levels of competence and and lack of. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, and a, a lot of times a patient just kind of goes into a setting, just presuming that they're in good hands because, uh, this person's a therapist and they must know all the answers, you know, Yeah, trust your gut. Yep. So the moment oh. you feel something doesn't feel right, pay attention yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. Anthony, why right. don't we do Who's this? Next, why, don't, why don't I play the, uh, the promo and disconnect from ACB radio? Cause we do need to do that. And then you guys can take the rest of your questions.
2: Cool.